Before we jump into this episode, quick reminder that everything said on Bell Curve is a meme and nothing said on Bell Curve is financial advice. Enjoy the app. All right, guys, welcome back to another Bell Curve Roundup. You got uh, Michael's one and two. Yeah, no advance. Fellas, welcome back. What's happening? Good to see you guys. Good good week, huh? I feel like it's a good, good week for crypto. I had a good week. What, what happened in crypto? Ryan, yeah, Carson, what le- Ryan Carson left NFTs, so we're, we're back. Oh, he's out? He's out. Good. Nice. <laughs> well, now we can resume the bump. Yeah. Yeah. I like that we finally got evidence this week that you should invest in bald CEOs. That's that's my big takeaway from this week. Oh, I've been I've been saying this for a while. Bald, bald is undefeated. Bald is undefeated. It's like the have you ever seen the the curb your enthusiasm with the uh the attractive wife versus the unattractive wife? Same thing. Pagaya's hair is just too vain for me, personally. I want give me give me a bald man. That yeah. guy's got working. Basically hair. short framework is the uh is the <laughs> I was about to say. Take a <laughs> We're we're quadruple threats. We're hair, body, face, and eyebrow guys. So, your eyebrow guys was that even mean? That expressive. Not right. Could you do the one up or one down? Don't give all that and carry up and down. Oh, wow! Look at that eyebrow control. All right, this is this is uh, all right. Let's just let's actually get into it. Let's talk about. We got to talk about Coinbase because they had a they had a big week. Do you guys want to do earnings or uh, base the L two chain first? Let's do base. Yeah, cool. All right. Yeah, no, you want to give us the... You actually did the interview with, with Jesse. You want to give us... Yeah, sure. I like you a little overview. So basically, this week, Coinbase launched their own L2. Um, it's called Base. It's built on the OP stack, which is different than being built on Optimism. So the OP stack is open source code that powers Optimism. Um, the backstory, the like little backstory is that they met the Optimism team while Optimism was uh, working on EIP. They're contributing to EIP4844. Um, met the team, really liked them. Coinbase is now joining as the second core dev team working on the OP, uh, OP stack. And they're also going to contribute uh, some of the sequencer revenue to like fund public goods, including uh, contributing to the OP stack. From a competition lens, uh, bases. my understanding is that they're competing with all the other L2s. Like They're competing with Optimism and other L2s right now. Eventually, they see everything being interoperable, integrating together, but not yet, which is like kind of a funny thing because... Optimism is helping Coinbase get this off the ground, but also competing with them. So, but, you know, crypto. So um, it's permissionless from day one. It's in testnet right now. Mainnet comes soon. They're also launching this ecosystem fund to incentivize development. Um, From a business model perspective, it seems like the business model is fees here. Um, But that's something I definitely want to talk about with you guys. They're not enabling MEV right now. So basically transactions are just going to be handled in the way, uh, in the order that they come into the sequencer. And on the note of the sequencer, I think Coinbase right now is the only sequencer, but eventually they're going to decentralize the block building, which will or should open up MEV. Um, I think that's about it. Oh, th- and there's no token, which no is token. from yeah. a regulatory perspective, no token, no MEV seems probably like a smart move. So, and and there's some agreement between uh, Coinbase and Optimism for them to pay, like so it, I think it was twenty percent in like an earlier version of the website, but now it's like some arbitrary percent for use of their sequencer, and that seems to be the Optimism business model going forward. Is a million different app chains, and they all use the sequencer. Like we'll we'll see if that works. We're also investors in Optimism, so yeah, we're biased here, but 
I tweeted this, but it does feel like the app chain narrative is starting to play out on ETH, which is cool. Yeah. What 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 do your guys like kind of take around that? Obviously, this created a lot of like energy. They they it kind of leaked a little bit before. Uh, you know, they did their like those that little blue orb or whatever, and I think mean, a lot of people guessed. Every, everyone on Twitter leaked it. Without, I wouldn't say it was a leak. I think Coinbase was like, let's like a blood. Yeah. Get people hyped. Yeah. Yeah. But um, like, how do you guys contextualize this? Like, do you think it's a really big deal? Uh, like Coinbase has, I think, 108 million users is the figure they gave at their earnings. So could be a huge, you know, push to get people kind of on chain. But like, kind of help contextualize, like, how big of a deal is this? Like, how good is it for Coinbase? Game changer, I think. I think this will be one of the biggest product launches of the year. I think bringing crypto to 110 million registered users on coinbase evm equivalents gasless transactions all the coinbase apis account abstraction from day one native bridging professional rpc nodes from day one like you're basically bringing 100 plus million users into l2 and like crypto native land i think it's a huge deal so i think yeah you just touched on the two points that i think are the most important the number one is account abstraction where you're going to be able to have an account or an app or some interaction where the app is actually paying your gas fees. And that I think has been actually like, it's really rudimentary to think about, but like that's been the number one impediment to growth from a user perspective. It's just like every single time you go into an app and you have to like charge somebody to actually use the app, it's just so counterintuitive to how the the data of internet works. And so the ability to have account abstraction out of the gate with hundred million you know, registered users, that's massive. The second is the the native integration, being able to actually like have an entity sign financial contracts or any sort of legal agreements on one end and then put a token on the other end and have that be the native bridging is a massive deal. One of the theses that, you know, I, I personally have been thinking about a lot and we're starting to see a little bit of like the tea leaves as they start to form up, but like real world assets on chain, real world assets in DeFi, I think is one of the major theses that we can point to in 2023 to be like, okay, this is going to be like one of the major themes of the future of DeFi. But the biggest issue is being able to have like authority and authenticity of real world assets being put on chain. You know, what if you want to put, you know, some collateral that exists in a legal contract in the real world, who's going to be the arbiter of that? Who's going to have the legal contract? Who's going to be able to like verify that that's real? Um, This could be the application layer that enables that. And yeah, I mean, th- those are the two big things that I think about when I when I think about Coinbase and Base. The the other thing is just like I don't think that people are going to actually understand how big of a deal this is until like a year or two from now, and it's going to be one of those like, oh wow, this they launch and nobody really gets it, nobody understands it, but eventually everyone's going to be like, oh wow, that was a massive deal, but only in retrospect, not right now. The, the I agree with everything Michael said. Two unique takes I think I have on this are the more that people have rollups that don't have tokens, the more everyone else is going to get questioned and pushed on why they have a token. If you have things like Eigenlayer and if you have things like Base, which are both demonstrating how to create rollups, data availability layers, bridges, Oracle networks without a token, I think there's going to be a real question as to like what the value prop of a token for something like Arbitrum or frankly Optimism is. So that's one unique take I have. I think the other is 
it's super cool. They're going to onboard a ton of people. It's going to be really great. And then there's going to be a moment where the inmates take over the mental asylum and there's like home forks and dog coins and like all sorts of crazy stuff happening. And that's going to be a moment where I think the probably regulators or powers that be are like, what the hell is going on on this chain that you created Coinbase? And that's going to be hard to answer in some contexts, but in other contexts, there is no security here. There is no token. There is no expectation of profit. It is just an ecosystem that's running on open source software that's built on Ethereum. And yes, you can decentralize the sequencer, but it's going to be really hard for regulators to really press on this in a way that that is meaningful. I think that might be part of the Coinbase strategy here is like, look, we just built this. Like this is open source technology. People can do with it what they want, but fundamentally whatever happens on the chain is really not our fault. So one question that I have is like, how do you guys break down? What's the business opportunity here? Obviously they didn't talk about, you know, there's no token, there's no, you know, ability to like invest in base right now. But the way that you would assume that Coinbase will make money is that there's going to be the set of validators for this ecosystem. And there can be the ones who are earning some form of, you know, payment. I think right now, at least in the form of ETH, maybe, maybe there's other forms of payment eventually. Like, what do you think the ultimate business model is here for Coinbase and launching base? I have three business model ideas for, for Coinbase here. One is that, um, so, so if you look at, so Binance did 1.2 million in fees yesterday, the, the BNB or Binance chain, whatever you want to call it, roughly the same, doing like roughly the same volume as Arbitrum in terms of transaction scale, that's $500 million a year that they're generating in revenue in a down market. And I think that there's no reason that the base chain can't do something similar just with on-chain fees. So I think like right now you look at like L2, L2s are making like a hundred million a year on sequencer fees in a bear market with, let's call it a couple hundred thousand users. I think optimism maybe is less than that, like 20 million a year or 30 million a year. Arbitrum is probably closer to 50 million, hundred million a year. So I think like that, that's one model is fees. Um, the next model is I think Coinbase now with this will, it puts them in the lead to win the real world asset battle. So right now Coinbase, I, I think coin, I think devs or anyone building like real world asset stuff will basically be able to log, you, like leverage the, all the KYC data for whitelisting of real world assets. Plus Coinbase can offer uh, like on-ramping and like direct on-ramping to the chain from Coinbase, which is super lucrative. So I think it basically just like it makes putting securities on chain a hundred times easier because you can like determine how much KYC and how much you want to pull in from like the centralized Coinbase. So that that's like, I don't know exactly how that'll work, but I would have got to imagine this, like this puts them in the lead for real world asset stuff. And then I think the third is um just staking and like CBE. I think, I think at the start, Coinbase is going to make these like small UX decisions that push CBE on, on base. And then eventually I think you could see like CBE becoming the the gas token of a base so trying to make cve the the like de facto lsd uh would be the third business model i i agree with all those i would add one more which is their wallet i think is going to be integral to this play like mm. they like think about it they decided to play at the layer two level not the layer three level right there's like a rollout architecture that people are building on bedrock they decided to go level two Roll app? Did you say yeah, roll, roll app? Roll I like that. That's yeah, cool. Roll app. Yeah. Um, like, huh? I did not. Yeah, yeah, I did not. I'll take credit for it. Like, sure. Yeah, why not? But uh, no, the roll app. So I, I, um, 
I think one of the things that Coinbase has been, it, people have been kind of sleeping on is this this wallet, mm-hmm. right? Like honestly, like you guys said it, like crypto still has a MetaMask problem in general. Like I've used the Coinbase wallet, like it's pretty nice. Like if you mm-hmm. got, if you suddenly onboarded, how many active users does MetaMask have? Six million people. Coinbase has 108 million users. If they converted even 20% of that, they've got three times the amount of users of, of MetaMask. And I actually think it's it's a pretty kind of a brave business move, honestly. Like you could, the, the bread and butter of Coinbase is still transaction-based. I'm sure what you could look at is this could be cannibalizing to that. Like the obvious revenue source is like in, in wallet swaps, right? From like the Coinbase wallet, which you could look at as kind of cannibalizing the, the golden goose. But I think it's like they sense that that's where the market is kind of going and could be huge. Um, you know, it's basically your, you, you can kind of, it's what Jason said, like you can kind of push people in the UI UX and make CB the, the Coinbase wallet, kind of the native wallet of this ecosystem that they're pushing all of these people into and they could kind of take down MetaMask there. Um, it, it also like, Vince, you kind of brought up this idea of the app chain thesis. Like one question that I have is like, and I think it's still undecided, is how fat are is the exchange layer going to be as an application layer because right now like they've bundled a whole bunch of things together they've got you know custody they act as a brokerage they act as an exchange they do all of these things and it it it's yet like tbd on how like that's going to get bundled out right and like broken up and there is a world where like coinbase acts as like a thinner layer kind of in the future like a thin app layer on top of a whole bunch of DeFi protocols um and they're kind of the aggregator distribution layer and they abstract away a lot of the complexities of interacting with DeFi. I think it's just, I'm like very, very interested to see how that all evolves. I, I think so, there will be two. Yeah, go ahead, Vance. Go ahead. So some aspects of DeFi, they will like spot trading. Most aspects of DeFi, lending, derivatives, insurance, not going to be able to touch. Too dicey from a regulatory perspective. But I, I, I see your point. Yeah, I don't get they're going to build their own. So they're launching like teams to go build um, apps as well on base. So like there's going to be just builders who go build on base, but they're also going to build on base as well. So I could see like right now in their wallet, I think they integrate like if you want to swap, I think it probably integrates with like Paraswap or Matcha or something like that. I think you could eventually see them like if you think about any other business in the world, if that was the case, you do that, you integrate and make it as easy as possible. And then you start climbing down the stack and you want to go lower and lower yeah. on the stack. So if this were another business, like the inevitable thing seems like they do that, they get the users, then they start eating away and shipping and going lower and lower on the stack. So you could see them building like a hair swap competitor. Right. It's really, really interesting. The The comparison that you had with the BNB chain making whatever, how many million, 1.2, 1.4, million dollars a day uh having all of that aggregate to coinbase the validator set of base which is going to be interesting from just like a what is decentralized what is not decentralized yeah, yeah who else is going to be a validator on base there's no token you know there's no like egalitarian way of deciding who's going to be a validator is it going to be like coinbase that decides who else is a validator or is it just to be coinbase who's the validator in the in the senior system like that point will be an interesting one to see how they traverse why do you I've think got, they only watch with one validator? Right. Do they decentralize it? What is, what is a what is a blockchain if it's just one validator? I think that's the but that they all do that. Like my understanding is that the hardware like everyone wants to decentralize the sequencer set, 
my understanding is that when you do that, it increases the the hardware requirements of, of running one of those things to a point where it's not super feasible today. So I think it's on everyone's kind of roadmap to decentralize that sequence or set, but today it's just not super feasible. Um, I, I do want to like, we talked about MEV last episode and I want to, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but like, look at what we talked about. MEV is probably going to get extracted at two points in the MEV value chain at the wallet layer, right? Via order flow. And then at the block space layer via block space auctions, you can imagine a world here where Coinbase as its own L2 kind of controls or has a lot of influence at the block space layer, right? With their, right now it's a solo sequencer, but eventually they'll, they'll still have a role in that. And then they've got, if a bunch of people start trading on the, on their wallet, then they, they kind of have access to the order flow layer at the top too, which is a super unique position in like imperfect analogy, but it's almost like Citadel Securities and Robinhood being the same, the same player, you know, which is interesting. Or like, or like Top Shot and Flow being the same player. Yeah, yeah, true. That's a security, dude. We don't talk about it. Uh, security is <laughs> not a security. That is not a security. Okay. I do think that is relevant here, though. Like, if one of the facts around why this could potentially be a security for Dapper is the fact that they spun up their own validators, they had all the on and off ramps from a fiat wallet perspective, they had all the UI components from an interaction with the chain perspective on their wallet, like there is going to be a limit as to what Coinbase can extract from this chain, even if optically. But if it goes the direction of like, we're extracting MEV and we're extracting payment for order flow and we're like building the NFTs and we're building the exchanges. I don't think that's a securities violation. I think that's more of like a FinCEN. Like, is this a bad network that you're just privately operating? How does this work? I mean, not to dive too, too deep into it, but like there, I, I would also say like, there's not too sharp of a comparison between like, flow and and what we're talking about here with with base uh with flow it was a private blockchain they controlled the payment network they issued all the different nfts they're the ones that they would literally restrict how much you could put in and how much you could pull out of the ecosystem like there were a lot more controls it was very much database but i I think you know it is it is kind of an interesting comparison but you know to nancy's point like the more com- the, the more you add on, the more you layer on on top of each other from the same entity, the more there is a question of like egalitarian decentralization. Let, let's th- let's think about like a funny worst case scenario for 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 base. So like say like Lazarus Group somehow like bridges onto the chain and starts re- wreaking havoc. Like what what does Coinbase do? Can they do anything? Are they responsible? Are they in charge? What do you guys think? What are the regulators? What, what do you mean by wreaking havoc, Vince? <laughs> Let's say that Lazarus Group steals a bunch of money from base or from somewhere else and then bridges it onto base. And there's now this like large slug of dirty money that's interacting with clean retail. Like, how, how does that play out? Well, not even that. Let's say that they build a fork of Aave and they, they say, okay, great. Like, we are now operating our own, you know, Aave lending markets. And every single time, it's not, you know, just like, Ave and like there's some dirty value that's on chain. It's like every single time you're interacting, the counterparty is Lazarus Group. I've I've got I've got another one for you as well. I'm not I I've, I'm not sure about the technical capabilities here. Maybe we can just edit this in after here. But there was a great um, excerpt. Uh, Alex Thorne in in his podcast, he interviewed one of the um, uh, someone who worked at Paxos with Binance, and he 
described one of the reasons behind Binance's decision to have BUSD. And actually, it was kind of like a risk management, liability management thing, because people were basically making a whole bunch of different versions of BUSD, and Binance is associated with that from a brand standpoint. So this is an important concept, but you can kind of look at uh, things that are issued there as liabilities of Binance, in a, in a sense. Not necessarily a legal sense, but like a brand sense, right? So my question to you guys is, would you consider this kind of a liability for Coinbase at the same time, even if it's not, again, in a strict legal sense, a liability? Like if people, if there was like, for instance, a big exploit or something like that, and a bunch of people lost money on Coinbase chain, the, <clears throat> what the brand move says to do is you want to uh, compensate your users, right? In the same way that like the Winklevi stepped in and provided a $100 million backstop. So again, just on like the considerations to have is like, you know, if this is some open permissionless thing and people like we all know it's going to happen, right? People are going to get rugged. People are going to do dumb stuff. Uh, you know, are those kind of liabilities of Coinbase? I'd pose that an open question. I, I think this is going to be regarded as like a really good decision and then a really bad decision and then like a really good decision. It's just going to be a roller coaster. Yeah. Once you start opening up these permissionless chains to people to build on and just, you know, do whatever they want to do on like Michael and I both know it, it can get pretty messy, you know, and like, and like the concept is no one's responsible, but if it's called base chain and your name's Coinbase, mm -hmm. the, I mean, yeah. that being said, like every single time someone gets hacked via some application on the internet, it's not like they're calling up Cisco because it went through Cisco routers. Like I think there is a Coinbase is an easy target. Coinbase is an easy target for sure, but like I, I, I do kind of question whether or not like people are going to ascribe a value of everything that's like Coinbase versus like apps that are built on base. And, and frankly, I just don't know. Like we don't know yet. We don't know what that like separation is going to be. It's not like people are calling out Vitalik every time they get rocked on Ethereum. Different. There was, there was a there was a um a case two years ago with Cloudflare. Do you guys know Cloudflare? Yep where people were suing Cloudflare for bad stuff that was happening across the internet. And I think specifically it was copyright infringement. So like there'd be copyright infringement and someone like Disney would sue Cloudflare. They're like, our thing is getting copyrighted and like it's going on this website, you have to take it down. And actually the, I think the Supreme Court deemed that Cloudflare was not, did not have to take that stuff down, which I'm trying to draw an analogy to what two world, but I mean, kind of I mean, I think that's a, the, the totally fair analogy. I, I don't know the details of that situation, but like Cloudflare runs a lot of the internet. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, like a lot of everything is either built with one of their products, built with one of their services, or like managed by one of them. I, it, once again, easy target. I, I think they're publicly traded or, or at least, you know, <clears throat> a large company to go after. It's sort of like going after the ISP or going after the, the um, CDN for you know, data that happens to pop up somewhere around the internet. It feels like, you know, you can grasp at straws in that respect, but it's not going to be like, really who's at fault. Yeah. I, I, I again, like just, you know, I, I don't think it's, in my mind, it's less of a like, who is legally liable fault. It's more of just a, a brand thing. And again, the chain is called base. I think that's the difference, you know? Um, and they're, they're a company, you know, so no one's going to get anywhere by yelling at Vitalik, the individual, but like Coinbase is an entity that you can sue. So, oh yeah. And they do get sued a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the stock. 
Cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the, sense, in the sense that like investors had no idea how to value this news and that the stock was actually down on this news. <laughs> well, yes, but let, well, let's get that. Yeah, let's get there. But uh, let's talk about earnings first because they announced earnings this week before this news came out. So in terms of revenue, they did 604 million versus 581.2 million uh, of expectation. Uh, the way that breaks down is $308 million of consumer trading, which is slightly down Q over or quarter over quarter, I think 9% down. 182 million uh, through interest income. So that's basically that partnership that they have with uh, USD uh, Circle, USDC. And then 62.4 came from staking rewards, which is basically dead flat. And that's actually kind of interesting considering the success of CBE. Um, in terms of kind of profitability, uh, they reduced, their, they had a 4% uh, quarter over quarter reduction in terms of employee headcount. That's still up 21% year over year, but they're kind of doing what Wall Street wants them to do, which is be more responsible from an operating standpoint. Uh, they had a, a Q4 loss of $557 million, which seems like a lot, but it's where they guided. Uh, so I think two quarters ago, they basically guided and said, we're going to lose between five and $600 million a quarter. So this is within kind of you know what they said they were going to do. Coinbase has $5.5 billion in, in cash. Um, so... I, I can give I listen to the earnings call. It was not wild. The the only thing that I would add to this is I would say that in the in the earnings call, they indicated a change in philosophy. So previously they've guided and said, hey, we are basically gonna make hey, well, the sun is shining. Like we expect to generate a lot of profits during a bull market. And our aim is to break even during during bear markets or or down cyclical periods. They've changed that philosophy. They now want to generate profit in uh all conditions, all market conditions. So it's what most people wants to hear. Even Coinbase moving from growth to value. <laughs> yeah, and everyone is going to be able to actually move, make that pivot, but everyone is saying that they're going to do it. I, I think that's like the trend. But Michael and I were talking about this a couple of nights ago. They're like, they're like holed up in some place and like they've got, they're basically like surrounded by regulators, by class action lawsuits, like staking income, probably going to, you know, to your point, get discounted. You know, there's it's unclear if that will continue to persist in a world where Kraken is down from 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 a retail perspective, right? In a world where Kraken retail is down, uh, custodial, you know, all the money that we pay to to keep our cash or to keep our assets different places, if they're not a QC, that is a big deal. Paul Grewal on Twitter is like saying, you know, we're a QC and like we were yesterday and we're, we'll be there, you know, tomorrow. His opinion doesn't really matter. We report to the SEC and they're the people who tell us where we can put our assets. So, like that will also go down. So this is a major subject that we should talk about, but it'll put a pit in that and we can talk about it in a bit. Like this QC thing that came out of the SEC last week, I believe, is is like a major, major topic. But we can yep. pause. QC income down, trading income down. Um like Coinbase is definitely the stalwart of of the U.S. movement, especially the institutional movement for crypto. But like, I follow Dejan Spartan. I see him behind Coin at you know thirty five and forty. I don't necessarily think it's it's uh it definitely has a lot of hair on it. Is how I would put it. It feels like every single business that they have is coming after. It is getting like chased after by regulators, by people, by competitors. Whatever it may be, I mean, the Kraken stuff I think is big. That could have ramifications if similar logic, not the same logic. Everything, everything is facts and circumstances. 
CBETH could be in the crosshairs of a regulatory action in the same way that Kraken was. But uh, so to talk about it now, uh, the SEC put out comments um, basically describing what their proposed change to what a qualified custodian is. And this is a rule change that would literally change to, uh, or, or be, a, I think, a different interpretation of the Advisors Act. Basically, the the TLDR is we are framework is in RIA with the SEC, which means that we have a duty of care to be able to keep all of our uh, funds assets at a qualified custodian. Qualified custodians, you know, historically have been you know Anchorage, uh, Coinbase Prime. There's a number of others, um, you know, that that we've worked with or or that provide the same service. The reason why you can have a qualified custodian is because they have, I, I believe, a trust uh, um, charter that allows them to be you know, a qualified custodian via their trust relationship. What the the proposed rule will change is basically that being an available option for being a qualified custodian, which would effectively like change the way that they're looking at subscription revenue or or the way that they're looking at you know their prime offering for institutions. And I think that that, you know, is one of the business lives that's actually been growing and actually been shining. And, you know, it feels like there's just so many different angles that every single time they try to move in one direction or try to be able to like build the base and build, build a strong business, there's getting shut down left, right, and center. There's the, the additional yeah. nuances. So there's, there's kind of like two ways to become a QC right now. There's a state charter or a state trust, which is what Coinbase has. And then there's a federal charter which is what Anchorage has. And then everyone else who basically is a QC or claims to be a QC in the US has one of these state trusts or charters. And the only reason why Anchorage has the federal charter is because you know the OG Brian Brooks gave them that on his way out as the interim OCC chair. And so, you know, there's there's changes to this rule. There's also rumblings that like, you know, maybe Coinbase or Anchorage could, you know, both get their charters pulled in some way, shape, or form. And then it's like, <laughs> where does framework keep our assets? And like BNY Mellon is one option, but like they're not going to take the stuff that we have. Like we just have so many different types of tokens. Like there's just yeah, it, no feasible way that we could put it there. What, and what, what would you actually do there? We're, we're trying to figure this out. Like, and same with every other firm. And, you know, it's uh, like the one thing you can do is basically, uh, you know, write a letter explaining why. Uh, you know, you're doing your duty of care for your assets and why this is representative of a qualified custodian, even though it might not technically be one. The fact is you're still probably in violation of SEC rules. This is this is not up to Coinbase to decide. This is up to the fund managers or to the SEC who are going to get dinged whenever they're having assets that are in non-compliant places. And Fireblocks isn't compliant, you know, like all of these solutions, it's really targeted at us, which is the, the weird part. So this is basically just going to end up creating like some sort of monopoly around custodial services where the regulators are going to king make a couple of custody folks, right? They've already been I mean, made. He made. Yeah. Well, they've already been he made, which is Coinbase because they have a trust, uh, Anchorage because they have a national trust, BNY Mellon if you have Bitcoin, and like other banks if you have Bitcoin only. But what they're trying to do now is take all the ones that were previously king made and say, nope, those don't actually qualify. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, there is going to be like, kind of a, a stuck between a rock and a hard place if this goes through. But, you know, who is cannon fodder in this process? Subscription revenue at Coinbase. Yeah. And, and, and institutions that are trying to get into anything other than like Bitcoin or ETH. 
Like, no. yeah, maybe they can stuff that into BNY Mellon, come up with some bespoke arrangement. Also, I, th- I think Fireblocks is the back end for BNY Mellon, which is like yeah, kind of yeah. because that's like also not a proper custody solution. It's just shitty because like we feel like we're trying to do our jobs. Uh, and meanwhile, we're being forced to solutions that are either higher cost or lower security. Is there uh, any decentralized like crypto native MPC solution out there? Oh, there, I mean, there's turns, but they're they're not. They don't satisfy the SEC, you know, circulation. A native decentralized MPC solution is not a qualified custodian. So ruled out just by default. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, look at that. Like the whole point of the SEC, right? And this is frankly like what they should be doing, right? Is to protect like your grandma from, you know, swindlers who say, hey, like invest $500 in this. Like the whole reason why hedge funds and RIAs are regulated in a totally different way is like the thinking, the philosophy and thinking goes like, if you have a bunch of money and these are purportedly, you know, very sophisticated investors, we don't have to be as hands-on and help. And like, if you lose your money, well, it's kind of tough shit. And there's a bit of like a systemic thing where they don't want, you know, you, uh, you know, part of the reason they stipulate a qualified custodian is they don't want, uh, you know, big systemic parts of the market to fall out. But it's hard. I, I don't, I don't know if they've put out, you know, an official, like why they're proposing to do this or like what the reason is behind it. But it's hard to see any other reason other than just choke off capital to crypto, make it more difficult for people that want to invest to invest. You know? I mean, let's be serious. It's under the guise of, okay, SBF just ran away with how many billions of, of, you know, customer funds, you know, they're trying to prevent that from happening again. And of course, everything is, is thrown, you know, the baby is thrown out with bathwater here, but like, that's the reasoning. Yeah. The ones will find a way to make it work because like, you know, this is our job. The institutions like picture a 29 year old analyst at like Apollo who's like trying to pitch crypto to a bunch of really old guys. And it's like, yeah, we can do this. It might make money. I'm very passionate about it. And they're like, where do we put it? It's like, oh yeah, that would make the firm in violation of SEC custody rules. It's like, absolutely not. Chop. But- yeah. You know, is what it is. Us, you know, the the thing that we started talking about here originally was okay. This is one of the business lines that's been growing. This is one of the big opportunities for Coinbase. If this proposed rule goes in, does it change the outlook for Coinbase? Just based on the fact that you know this institutional Prime product that they have, and and trading is one of the products within Prime. Uh, custody is obviously another one. Um, you know, does it change either the opportunity from a growth perspective or just like the margin that they have. You know, the other the other thing too is like if they have to go off and keep this in a different location or have to do this in a different way, or if they have to have a different insurance provider, does that actually change the business model that they have where instead of charging 15, 20 bips on, you know, whenever assets are being held within Prime, do they have to charge 50 now because like their cost structure has changed? Like th- there, there are a lot of different, yeah perspective as to like what could happen to the business but this has been one of the shining lights i would say within coinbase and uh the, re- the reason you know to your point michael why this is so important is the general thinking on wall street is you know we've seen this play out before fees especially in kind of a brokerage model is is a race to zero so even though coinbase is generating quite a bit of money from from their fees today their transaction revenue which is for those of you who are following along on video can kind of see up here uh, the thinking is that that that's eventually going to go away, and that's why there's so much emphasis on this bucket here 
the subscription and services revenue, which is blockchain rewards, which is basically staking, custodial fee revenue, interest income, and this kind of other, which I guess is like Earn and uh, their Coinbase One subscription product. And honestly, like just because we've been so nice to, to Coinbase here, like, you know, this interest income is kind of a dubious grouping, frankly, within this bucket because, you know, I don't think interest income really, that's not, that's definitely not a subscription type product. And uh, it was a good hedge. Like it's a good business decision. Like their center consortium with circles paying off, but I, you know, that shouldn't be getting a subscription type multiple, I don't think. And that's and to your to your point, that's the challenge. Basically, they've got big headwinds in this this revenue bucket here. Yeah, I mean, if things get bullish again, they're gonna get, they're gonna be making so much money, and everyone's uh, yeah. turning on a dime. So it is a little bit of feast or famine. But to Brian's point, now he's like an all weather stock, so kind of expect a little bit more. Well, Jason Jason made this joke in the, at the opening here, but like it is, you know. I, I actually just can't wait for the next earnings call and listening to the questions that these equity analysts have about it. Just, just also go and take a look. You can, you can go see the equity analysts that like cover, uh, that cover Coinbase. These guys have a decent understanding of, uh, you know, what a brokerage model is or an exchange model. But as far as crypto, like they have no idea how to value base. And by the way, like they, this is a little bit of, a, I talked to, a one of the analysts who works like a big bulge bracket and they were, you know, they all kind of speak to each other. And the thing that they were excited about was um, the NFT. The reason why the analysts were bullish on uh, Coinbase for a while was their NFT backlog. Do you remember when they had like 2 million people or whatever signed up? And yep. uh, yeah, and that was, that was what all the bankers were talking to each other about. They were like, Ooh, that sign up like bullish, bullish Coinbase. So I just, <laughs> I didn't learn it. I just wouldn't listen. You know, they're just not in the weeds enough to, you know, how old are these people? <laughs> you can look up by average age of, yeah, 45, 50. There's not, yeah, yeah. that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, let's talk LSTs. 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 Mm. What are we, what are we pivoting to? Liquid staking tokens? But wait, yeah. always, we talk about this. Has, always has been. LSTs. They're not no derivative here. So, <laughs> I had this conversation with uh, a company who I won't name, but uh, it's this Asian company that has a bunch of ETH. And Bund or a CFI company? Uh, not gonna say, but you know, they, they, it's one or the other. Okay, um, <laughs> narrow it down for you. But they were like, "Yeah, we have like billions of ETH, and we're starting our own liquid stake uh, token." I was like, "Interesting. Like, you're just." You're just going to start it, and they're like, "Yeah, it's like easy way to make money. Like we have a lot of ETH it's just sitting there. Like we're going to you know, go off to different things with it." So many people are going to do this. Where this is like another thing that I saw last week was uh, somebody forked Rocket Pool's code. I forget what the name of the project was. They got a bunch of shit on Twitter. They made the GitHub repo private in response, but their whole plan is basically like clone uh, this LSD, uh, make you know, people deposit into it, give them tokens to do so. And then that's going to be their business model. The last time I saw this happen, this copy paste clone stuff was like during DeFi summer with the AMMs. Whenever you see people starting to copy paste stuff, that's a very strong signal that something is happening in the market. And here's why. The lowest effort to make the most amount of money is where most of the capital will trend. 
and and that is going to be a theme i think for for a while and and yearns lst basket is playing right into this which i think is pretty interesting so that's uh by the way i want to bookmark this because that exact viewpoint i want to recycle for some of these new stable coins that are that are being issued but i want to get your i want to get your perspective on uh like let's just talk about the urine urine basket in general so um could you could you guys give a kind of an overview for for sort of the uninitiating on how the the vaults work um and then i think we, we've already kind of talked about like staking derivatives and like who some of the big players are on the show so i'm not really sure that it makes a lot of sense to go into detail there but basically long and short of it is that er, uh this urine vault is kind of offering basket exposure to a whole bunch of different uh, LSTs. So could you guys like just go into the the merits of that or like why that might not make sense? So let's imagine uh, that there are a hundred LST projects. You know, everyone has decided that copy paste clone uh, LST projects is like the way to make money. All of these projects have tokens. All of these projects are willing to incentivize people uh, adding ETH to their vaults with tokens. They're willing to incentivize more liquidity for their LSTs, um, so on and so forth. Who is going to benefit from this? It's going to be people like Yearn that are basically saying, all right, we're going to aggregate all the LSTs. We are going to make sure that they have price parity with one another. We're going to get them distribution. And in return, you're going to give all the tokens you're planning on distributing to people to us, uh, us in two senses, us in the sense of, you know, just ape your LST into this yeast protocol and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll distribute the tokens and also tokens will go back to, to Wi-Fi holders. Like the Wi-Fi model really worked well when there was like a ton of different stable coins in DeFi summer and people were like trying to get leverage and trying to get borrow and trying to get price parity for their stable coin. Once that kind of, once the market really consolidated, Urine was one of the main people who just kind of, you know, had a negative impact from that. But like the explosion of the many different types of LSTs is exactly when there was like a hundred different types of stable coins and people were being willing to pay tokens just to get their stable coin into consideration. So I think it's like a, a really interesting move. Um, and they also have a bunch of curve and VE curve, which they can vote to uh, increase curve emissions, which is another source of yield for them. Like, this is this is happening in my mind, like the the LST summer, whatever you want to call it. But this is going to be a trend. Do, do not disagree with LST summer. Um, the one thing that I will say though is that the other thing that happened when everybody started copy pasta, uh, everybody else's code base is that we got absolutely blown up in certain situations. Like I don't know if you remember Vance, but like Yam and Yam. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, yeah, yeah we're off by like eighteen orders of magnitude in the math. Sorry. <laughs> like they had, there were there were eighteen zeros extra added to some calculations. I remember it on Ether scan, just like running over the bar. It was like the whole screen. <laughs> but you know, like the the problem that you're going to run into is like, okay, sure, like there's going to be a basket of uh, products that you yield. There's going to be a basket that, yeah, maybe like you're farming whatever the native token is of that one specific LST, and like that's giving you additional yield. But if that doesn't have any value, like. There's going to be a Lindy effect and there's going, going to be a different model here, which is it kind of goes back to like, what is the top one to maybe three different LSTs? And like, there is going to be a consolidation of that when everybody starts to realize, okay, like the inflationary rewards that are put off, out by like the 20th LST, like we're farming those, we're dumping those, but like it's only going to last for so long uh, until you can have some differentiated edge, maybe. But unless you can get into that top one, two, three, 
it's going to be really like hard to say that the value is not going to eventually aggregate around whoever is top dog. Totally. That's like a 2024 question though. We're going to do like the, just like craziness of, of something like DeFi summer, because when you have this and then you have eigenlayer, which is just like more combinatorial forms of yield, people are going to be putting their ETH in such strange places and some of them will never get it back. But there's going to be this like fervor around the speculative nature of these LSTs. You know, one of the things that this uh, reminds me of, just this psychological urge that you're talking about, Vance, is uh, I heard some quote a little while ago. is like, it's about Amazon. It was like more money has been lost chasing the next Amazon if they had just basically it was like, just invest in Amazon. Don't try to chase the next Amazon. But it's this thing that it's an urge that like a lot of people have when they're when they're sort of new to something, right? Like we've like joked about it, like first bags, but like the reason I kind of get it is like when I first came, like I had a similar psychological reaction to everyone else. Like I was watching Bitcoin go from like three to 20. I was like, all right, I've already missed that. So like, what's the next thing that I can buy that's going to do that? It's a, and it's, and it was very, and it was cheap Bitcoin, which was Litecoin. <laughs> yeah. No, that was literally <laughs> it. And I was like, oh, it's faster. Like, yeah. And you know, I, it's just, but, I've seen that reaction replicated across so many people. And listen, you can tell people. They won't listen. It's not just finance either. It's music. You know, you don't want to listen to someone popular. You want to find your own thing. It's, yeah. like, you know, it's like it's like everything. There's a market for being new. But with finance, it's it's different because I think the primary market that you're trying to serve is people are trying to make it. They're like, you know, it's I, I can't make it with Lido. You know, I can't make it with Rocket Pool. Like those will take 10 years. I need to make it in one year. How can I get there? It's like, well, you need to stake your ETH in some strange place. So why not get it back? What I was actually going to say is with, this is like one of the biggest pitfalls that I think we're going to start to see a lot more of in venture capital, which is that everybody just goes off and finds the next thing because it's valued at like 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars when, when, you know, like they're doing around versus actually betting on the number one and the, the industry leader, which may be valued at like a billion but at the same time, because of the market leader, because of the number one, they're going to actually have the venture scale outcome versus, you know, the other one who's hasn't even launched yet. And because they have a similar model, but like they're 20 times less expensive, you know, that's going to be the best opportunity. I, I think you're going to start to see a lot of this in the venture world where people are taking shots at whoever is the market leader, because it used to be that you should be in the top five, you'd be in the top seven, maybe even top 10 and still have like a venture outcome. But what we're going to start to see is that it's going to be top one, maybe two that have the venture outcome opportunities. Yeah. Power laws. Power laws. So basically, to, just to get your like kind of summation about this, not super bullish on these like vault, you know, broad index exposure, you know, thing to LSTs because. No, who, who are the winners? Uh, when the dust clears, probably the biggest ones still continue to win. Yeah. In general, just because it's like. DeFi summer, what brought stable coins on chain? Yeah, that was the only thing that made that happen. Um, this is is going to be the same thing where ETH is going to leave the centralized exchanges. ETH is going to be bought by people who want to get this like weird combinatorial yield. But other than that, there's probably going to be a market for like a super aggressive, like almost magic internet money style, like Daniel Estes playbook. And I think we're just like seeing that with Frax. But like there's not a ton of spots for people. I think it really depends on the time horizon. We're talking about over the next 12 months. I, I truly believe that we could see LST summer 
And there's just going to be so much tension brought into staking as soon as Shanghai goes in and like de-risking that. There's going to be institutional staking options. There's going to be like hedge fund products around staking that all of that becomes a massive opportunity. But like, let's be serious, over the next two to three years, it's probably going to be something that aggregates back to the winners. Yeah. I, the, I think that's fair. The other the other summer trend, maybe not summer, maybe fall, maybe winter, I don't know. But the other one that I, I think is like really interesting, and I was just messing around with this last last couple weeks, and I'm not sure how I feel about Blur, but like I can go on Blur right now and buy like one to two to three percent of an NFT collection. And I can also sell one to two to three percent of an NFT collection. And that fundamentally changes at least how I think about NFTs, because the last thing that I want is to buy an asset that tracks ETH where there's just no liquidity, where like you buy it and then like the liquidity portal closes behind you and you're waiting for like Sotheby's or someone to like auction off your collection at a block sale. Like if you can trade NFTs like coins and you know, you, you see Blur having a lot of, of, of the liquidity, you see things like uh, NFTX, which have like your ability to fractionalize and sell and, and borrow against things. Like it feels like slowly the pieces of the puzzle for NFT five summer or fall or whatever are starting to fall into place. Like that, that is another one that I think is is pretty interesting. And the the other interesting part about it is like almost by definition, it has to happen on ETH L1. All the attempts by L2s, by sidechains, by other L1s to create a meaningful NFT market have totally failed. Like nine of the ten NFT projects on Polygon are actually phishing scams right now. What why is that? Uh, probably something about the user base that's there. Yeah. And like people's desire to prey on them, which is like the ETH L1, it feels like a little bit more of a whale and a little bit more of an educated person's game. Um, but like people, people think that like, okay, the L2s are going to cannibalize all the L1 fees, maybe on the DeFi side, the NFT side, especially with things like blur that's staying on L1. I've got. I've got a couple. Sorry, I don't fully follow that, Vance. Like, why couldn't that go to Arbitrum or Optimism? I it, it could. Why hasn't it? You know, it, it, there's something about the ETH block space, about the provenance of the block space, about honestly. And I've talked to NFT projects and collectors about this. They kind of like how expensive the gas fees are. It, it tells them that, like, okay, this isn't moving anywhere. Like, the blockchain is secure. Like, if you're paying a penny for a painting on Polygon, do do you want to hang that in your house? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I actually kind of weirdly get that. It actually like lowers the liquidity a bit, which is like good for collector's markets. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a blur specific question for you. So I saw this, uh, this statistic, I'm going to get these number exact numbers, right. But the kind of order of magnitude is, I think roughly directionally correct. It was like the average transaction value on OpenSea is something like five or 750 bucks. And Blur was like five or six times that. So maybe it was around four grand or something like that. And, you know, that was being touted as like a good, a good thing, right? Like obviously that factors into the way that they generate revenue, right? Average transaction value volume. The question that I had though, like just trying to like put a narrative around that or like think why that might be is it seems like there's kind of like, you know, that hot ball of money that CMS talks about, like that's roughly my mental model for like how NFTs work right now. There's just this like kind of hop all of money in NFT land that is like these whales or people who get in early or are connected and they're kind of just rotating. And it seems like that's what Blur kind of won, right? Like they took that that group of people. And my question to you is like, is that, A, do you agree with that narrative? And B, 
is that a good thing? Is that the customer base that they want to build their business on? Uh, uh like Blur has its own problems for sure. Mm. Like 500 traders make up about 60, 70% of volume. Right. You know, they're incentivizing the shit out of liquidity with so many tokens and there's $300 million of tokens that are hitting the market. I, I guess when the next season launches in March 15th, so we'll see how how liquid the bids on these NFTs are fundamentally. Um, but it, it almost feels like they've cultivated this group of like NFT market makers that didn't exist before who are willing to take directional risk on NFTs. Mm-hmm. And like prior to this, the only way that I've heard of market making NFTs is basically setting like an automated program where uh, if somebody fat finger sells a crypto punk below the floor, you buy it, relist it at the floor, and then hope someone you know picks it up. Like if you can actually make a liquid market for these things and they become more of like the altcoin with picture thesis, that totally changes the dynamics of of the NFT market. Um, and it'll kill some categories of NFTs. Like it'll probably kill like the profile picture ones, um, but it'll probably do wonders for the long tail of, of NFTs as well that are probably less costly, less expensive. But like it feels like the market that Blur won't penetrate are things like Fidenzas. Like that is just so much directional risk to take on something that literally has no cash flows or, or you know, quantifiable value. And so like it will be uneven. Like I still think OpenSea and like Sotheby's will come to dominate the art collector market, but like the PFP market feels less important now and, and like games and longer tail NFTs feel more important. Yeah. It is, it is just funny. It's like, uh, it kind of, it does feel like there's like two markets in NFTs. There's the altcoin with pictures market and the Sotheby's kind of market. And, uh, you know, one thing I feel like I used to hear OpenSea say a lot is, or it was their strategy as I understood it. Like, that's why they had protection for royalties, because uh, they wanted to control the supply, right? Basically, of creators, they wanted to get them to list on OpenSea. But I think this is the Bill Burley thing, like, He's like in you know, years of funding and building marketplace-based businesses, I can definitively tell you that it is better to control the demand side. And I d- I do sort of think a lot of investing arguments in crypto have maybe because of the Bitcoin heritage have a natural supply side kind of bent to them. Uh, they're like we're going to create stuff that's really scarce. Whereas like I think you know if we're doing a scoreboard here for outsized returns like outside of crypto, like controlling the demand side is much more important. So maybe that's like a way that you could sort of, you know, see blur versus that. Maybe that's how the uh, NFT market gets split a little bit. I think, I think of it also is like the mashup of those of demand and supply, which is like, are you the price discovery venue? Uh, yeah. I think that's- and what, and once you lose, like, like, I, like Michael, remember when we used to trade before framework, uh, on Bitrex? <laughs> <laughs> Like that, that what is the price discovery venue? And then all of a sudden it wasn't and it completely lost relevance. Like even if you have one percent of the customers of OpenSea, if you become the liquidity venue and you know, be that through tokens or you know, a, a better programmatic API to trade through, like it's gonna be difficult for for people who trade NFT size to to ever go back to OpenSea. Like look at look at the other side, guys. Uh, I forget who it was. Two guys sold $10 million of board apes into the blur bid and the floor didn't move at all. Yeah. Like if you own serious amounts of NFTs, there's only one venue that you can now trade on and we'll see how the token does and how the bids persist. But like, uh, like what if, what if instead of crashing blur gets 
10 times bigger from a token price perspective. Mm. Now, like OpenSea would need to strategically launch a token to, to then get back to being the price discovery venue. But I don't think they can. Right. But at a certain point, like Why can't they burning down fully and you need to like start to put it out. I, I, I mean, maybe they can, maybe they can. I don't know. I, I would just say like they're very much situated in the camp of like Delaware C Corp, United States Corporation, not going to be able to launch a token, just like not within the wheelhouse yeah. and like corporate structuring that they put in place to the tune of $13 billion. So like, how do you, how do you write that ship? I don't know. Maybe like Hail Mary type move. You got to do it. You can, but it, it would be pretty disastrous, I would imagine. Do you think OpenSea is in Hail Mary mode with the $13 billion valuation? No, no, no. No, I, I, I didn't mean that at all. I, I, I meant if Vance, uh, Vance's prediction of like Blur going up 10x as opposed to like crashing 10x, you know, like th- at that point, you kind of have to call it a question like every single safer cow that you have. You know, do you, do you have to change your entire model? I, I've got a, um, or Jason, you have more questions. No, just leaning forward. And like one, one last thing I would say is like, what would be the retrospective on Uniswap versus SushiSwap? Like if Uniswap could do it over, would they say that launching the token when they did save them or didn't save them? I think it's kind of hard to tell, but like SushiSwap wasn't just like going to go away. You know, that wasn't like a problem that would have solved itself. It would have gotten worse, not better. I think you're right about that. I think you're right. I would, I would be really interested to hear like the complete back back room perspective on whether or not launching Uni and Uniswap token was the right call. Yeah. I think it was. Really? I mean, what was the what was the cost of them? They got a lot more they got like a six billion dollar market cap token and won the war. Like kind of whatever the counterfactual is, like the the ends have justified the means at this point in my mind. I, I, I understand that. I guess I would say, you know, raising $125 million to go off in a centralized direction, which seems to be putting the uni token at like a lower standard than what they're now focused on, would suggest that they have deprioritized the uni token. I think you could see OpenSea follow the same playbook where they're like, we're going to have the token and we're also going to have a wallet that we monetize. Have your cake and eat it too. Depends on how successful yeah, it doesn't really matter, you know? Yeah. I, yeah, I get it. Go ahead. No, 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 you go. Uh, last thought. Uh, I, I guess I would wonder whether or not Uniswap Incorporated or whatever the company is called versus OpenSea Incorporated has a better chance of going public. Because that's what you have to be playing for if you put $100 million into something, right? Uh, I think Coinbase is like a public company has been such a gong show that like, like it's hard to see what the path for them would be. Like Coinbase is like this incredible business with like a bunch of different revenue streams. Like if you're just selling NFTs, like I, I don't know if that clears like the, the public market hurdle of like, is this a good business? Especially at this point in time. At this point in time, hard to say. I'm, I, I mean more of like, if you're just okay. selling NFTs in the way that people think about NFTs today, not like, Hey, eBay, eBay, big company just selling collectibles on this marketplace. Like if, if yep. in the next cycle, I think we're in the depths of a bear. We got to remember. Totally. That. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Cycle NFTs are like digital collectibles that every big brand in the world has launched. Like boom, now you own the marketplace where digital collectibles trade public company. Right. But my point is 
whether or not OpenSea without a token or Uniswap with a token is going to have a better chance of getting past the SEC to go public. That's a good point. It's a good it's a good point. Uh, it also is just like there's a weird like internal conflict of interest where it's like which instrument are we concerned about value accruing to that is like I think can be confusing as well. But I want I want to get your guys' opinion on um, something else because this dynamic that you're talking about, like people piling into the new kind of thing, like, okay, to Jason, like we're in a bear market right now, right? So lots of companies during a bear market, they kind of converge on what's working, right? So like what is working right now? Like liquid staking derivatives, NFT marketplaces, and stable coins, right? So there are like the fiat collateralized stable coins like Tether, USDC. Then there's like kind of a, a slew of uh, decentralized stables, like there's DAI and you can debate on how decentralized that really is. But then there's this like new wave of stables. There's Go from Aave. There's uh, shoot. there's Curve that they've indicated that they're launching their own stable. And I've heard of two more that haven't launched. But I like I want you guys to tell me why I'm wrong here. Like I really don't think that that's a good idea, to be honest. Um, and And here's why. Because in general, like if you look at, and I don't mean to pick on I mean to pick on anyone here, but like Go as a as a business model, like what they're doing is they're a borrow lend protocol, right? Like they have a bunch of assets on their platform that like may or may not be liabilities, depending on how you view the contract kind of nature there. But they make money on that spread, and then Aave, like if you think about it from a capital structure standpoint, there's like the customer deposits here, and then there's the Aave token that's a backstop, right? In the case of an exploit, right? So that's what you have when you're holding the Aave token them being like, we're just going to launch Go, right? And we can give you cheaper cost of capital and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be this new revenue stream. In my mind, that's a new liability stream. That's an encumbrance on that Aave, that Aave token, right? Like that's, that's how I kind of view it. And the analog that I have is like, what's the future of this? Just each DeFi protocol has their own stable coin. Like we had in the wild west where each bank had their own currency. And then they all defaulted. Like, you know, I, I not to be a doomsayer, but like these these protocols could default. Like, if they're super over collateralized and safe now, but like, it's right there. That's what Abe is, right? It's the backstop, and there could be a spiral there where if your liabilities exceed your equity, that could be bad. So, I just am I like totally wrong in my framework for thinking about this? Like, I personally would like if you're going to be a stablecoin issuer, that's like all I want you to do, basically. You know, it's, it's no more risky than die, honestly. Like if you look at the curve construction or the Aave construction, it's like, all right, we're going to start with ETH collateral. We're going to mint this token against it. And we're going to spit incentives into curve pools and Uniswap to peg it. It's like kind of how die works. It's less Lindy. But, you know, if, if it depegs, theoretically, if it's backed by good collateral, it should be something that, you know, we would buy and, and just like arb the difference out. I think what you're seeing is just like lending protocols. I'm looking at Aave right now, uh, $9.4 million of annualized revenue. I, I think like 10% or so flows to the token. You know, that's just not enough to generate like a, a multi-billion dollar outcome. And, and maybe in the bear market, it's like five or 10 times higher, but like still then it's like pretty challenging. Like you just need to staple on more aspects to your business and if one of your competitors can mint a stablecoin for free and you have to draw a USDC off chain to on chain and then put it in your platform, like you're at a disadvantage. And so like all of this should be construed as these curve and, and Aave 
taking shots at Maker and wanting us. Do you guys remember, um, I don't know, maybe it was like 2017, 2018, when Snapchat came out with stories and then Instagram copied them and that every single platform on the internet had their own stories product? LinkedIn, like, I remember. <laughs> like, everyone was like, oh, we can do that too. Oh, we can do that. Like, I remember seeing a stories bar across, like, it was Photoshop, obviously, but like an Excel file. <laughs> like, it does feel a little bit like that, where like, oh, we can do that too. Like, oh, cost us nothing. Does it get us more users? Maybe. We'll find out. Yeah. What yeah. once they, once they start to dabble in like long tail collateral, that's when you know the game has changed. And if you want to start shorting the stablecoin, that's when you start doing that. Okay, so to start with, it is it is. I uh, okay. There's an interesting. Uh, so this comes from here. Let me actually get the link so I can make sure that I'm not subduing FUD here. But uh, this is a like this is a part of a proposal for. Makers, so this is a part of Makers Endgame, which is the that's the plan from Rune Christensen, the founder. I don't know if you guys can see my screen here, um, but basically, one of the, the tenants that's cut that was kind of buried that I didn't notice, and I saw someone tweet out about it, is that you can now leverage your Maker token, which is kind of like the equity in the network, uh, to borrow Dai. Um, and that, that to me is, I, again, I don't mean to be like doomsayer, but it's, I mean, that's a, that's a similar construction to, I mean, collateralizing the stable coin with the network equity is what got, uh, Terra into all that trouble. And before them, it was Enron that collateralized their loan obligations with Enron stock. It's like when that unwinds, it just happens very quickly. So I, I think you're right, but. I want to bring this back to like something Hasu said I like two years ago that when he I first said he first said it I really disagreed with but now I kind of agree you know that saying like you're at the mercy of your stupidest competitor it's like your your competitor is going to do non-economic decisions like you have to respond to position yourself otherwise you're going to get smoked I used to believe that but now we just watched all the people that made dumb decisions get washed out so aggressively that. I do kind of think there's some merit to making choices that you think are economic or viable or whatever in the long term and not just constantly counter positioning with stuff that also doesn't necessarily make sense. Do you see, do you have an opinion on that? Totally. I totally understand where you're coming from. I, I, I do think that there's a difference in DeFi and that it really does depend on the mechanism that you're talking about. Like, do I want to put up my maker tokens, be able to draw a die against it? I could view that as being the exact same proposition as putting up my ETH or like Blink or any other asset. It's just another asset. And sure, Maker has value and therefore like I want to be able to borrow against it. On the flip side, or not, not the flip side, on an additional point, you know, there is, an, there is a mechanism that has survived two bear markets at this point with the exact same you know, description that you're, you're, you're describing here, which is synthetics and, and we're an investor in it. Synthetics has been able to use and you know they're changing the token economics they're launching v3 they're going to talk there's going to be a bunch of people talking about it at ETH Denver in a couple of weeks but and and moving past this model directly but for the past four years three years they have been using snx the core asset as the collateral backstop for the entire ecosystem and 
you know, it, it once again really depends on the collateralization ratio, the mechanism for liquidation, like how you actually process that. And they've run into issues. They've solved those issues. But like, I think it all depends on the details. Um, and yes, like there will be people that blow themselves up like Terra and Doe, but there will also be others that have strong mechanisms and, and strong mechanism design. It, it's also just, a, it depends how big it is. If it's big, it could be a big problem. Like, there's 10 billion of maker stakes against a stablecoin. Maker's not that liquid either. Michael and I both know that. <laughs> like, you know, you can get really badly hurt if, you know, you have 10 billion of collateralization and you have 5 billion of stablecoins and, like, all of a sudden half of your supply is under collateralized. It, it's just, like, Luna really incentivized this to happen, so I don't think that'll happen at Maker. But this is kind of when you start flirting with the danger zone of, you know, using your own asset as collateral, which can create these destabilizing feedback loops, which is not good. I don't like it. I think it's a horrible idea. It's like, why do it? I think Maker struggles. Maker struggles from the this, like, I don't think Maker has decided still, like, what it wants to be. And this feels like another step in that direction of, like, I don't know, do you want to be this, like, super secure platform? Or do you want to, like, take risks and, like, grow at all costs and I, I don't yeah Just I think they, it has decided what it wants to be they've gone with the end game there was an internal battle between yeah. Hasu to be like some sort of uh you know he described it like the euro dollar kind of shadow banking system and then there was a this like end game phoenix you know scenario where uh, you right. know baker right. depegs or uh, uh die depegs as the, right. the inevitable thing I mean you know back to you like why do it like if you were if you were to steal on this, like why would you put Major as a collateral asset? <laughs> I don't think you should. I, I have right. You want me to make the argument that we should answer so that Rick against his Maker? Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, that every single Maker employee can use their assets as collateral. Yeah. I too would like free leverage. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. All right. So you know what is a funny? Uh, did you guys catch? All right. I'll I'll actually try to find the link to this proposal, but. In, within Maker, the end game, um, there was a proposal for Maker, the DAO, to buy Rune's personal stake in Lido. Do you remember yeah. that? That's so epic. <laughs> That's like, I propose that you buy my bags. <laughs> like, it's only been a minute since I've like seen Rune. Like, it has. Like, he feels like a, he's in the shadows somewhere. I heard him on a pod. He was sounding kind of wonky. <laughs> Remember when he was trying to donate 20,000 Maker to uh, some like woke cause? That is more Maker than the protocol has burned in its entire lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've got, I've got another one for you. This is also part of the end game, but there's a proposal for uh, something called uh, scientific. It's like scientific sustainability. So he wants to create a scientific sustainability fund as uh, something to the tune of 20,000 MKR. Uh, if you want to, if you want an understanding of how to run a professional global uh, scale grift, look no further than, uh, you know, the ESG business, right? Which is probably the most successful game in town right now. And uh, there's a whole industry around how to siphon off, uh, you know, investment and funds and direct flows of capital. Like is, you know, there are a couple instances of this is, is all I'm going to say. So, yeah, not throwing any I don't want to get Yano in trouble. He's a he's a maker delegate here. So, oh yeah, you're you're from you. 
<laughs> yeah, it was like, bro, I like this. I like, I like this. I like this. In fact, I would like to propose a Yanowitz sustainability fund to yeah. Yeah. my bags. Yeah. Can can you borrow against delegated state or no? Yeah, with with this you could. Oh yeah, no, you can. That that is uh, that's, that's part of it. Wow, so a little something for the delegates too. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you're kicking something to your friends. Yeah, kick. There should be a word. I mean, also if you look at all the delegates, you can look at where the delegates get their maker from. Most of the big delegates get their maker from Rune. So. There's this thing inside of Maker where, like, you know, you don't want to just vote how Rune wants you to vote, but like, also, Rune has given you all your money, all your all your voting tokens. So, so there's a little, there's a little governance uh, inside baseball here. Public, public, you can go see it. Yeah, <laughs> all this going on, I'm not going to be surprised if if Go or Curve USD takes a meaningful chunk out of Maker. You know what would be an interesting product, by the way? I don't know if this is possible. Can you see? You should theoretically. I, I don't think so, this, man. Right? Just because you don't want you want a you want a stablecoin that's been battle tested, and like Dai has been battle tested through like the absolute depths of the bear market, including like flash crash March twenty twenty. They do Maker's risk team is also phenomenal. So yeah, that's fair. And the yeah. stakehouse are great too. Yeah, exactly. There's infrastructure there. I, I, I agree that I don't like this, but I wouldn't go so far as to be like, oh, like Ave stablecoin is going to like eat a significant chunk out of die. I, I just, I will well, say I own When I borrow die, I sell it immediately. I get USDC. Yeah. That is how I use it. I did, uh, I did see two pitches this week for new stablecoin projects. There are at least, <laughs> neither of them not, are. Like, nothing happened. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll see. Neither of them are decentralized or like really kind of the the same thing that we're talking about here. But there is a there is at least some desire to you know move in the direction of finding new stablecoin projects. How you get distribution, how you get adoption, remains to be seen. But you have to do something differentiated. I I don't think it's going to be like let's just put stories on you know Abe and, and Curve. I, I will say, uh, if we're deciding, like taking Maker out of the equation and deciding between Curve and <laughs> and uh, Ave, I would put my hat in the Curve ring for that, just because the power of the gauge. And uh, I think when it comes to like currency, liquidity is kind of the altar that you worship at, and it is a little bit of like Amazon, you know, pushing your own products type deal. But to be honest, that that strategy works. Like, hey, so I, that's an interesting stable to watch. I would say as well. So, all right, fellas, I think we got to wrap here. This was a fun one, though.